Throughout his life, Menachem Begin held many titles. Student activist, leader of the Irgun, leader of the opposition, and Israel's prime minister. One value motivated everything he did, the protection of the Jewish people and prevention of a second Holocaust. Begin's father, mother, and older brother were all killed by the Nazis, as well as the 5,000 Jews in his hometown. And this trauma drove his belief. One of the clearest examples was Operation Opera, the Israeli raid on an Iraqi nuclear reactor in 1981. Welcome to Decision Points. This season, we'll tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Israeli-Arab-American relations over the last 70 years. My name is Dave Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israeli Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Menachem Begin was born in 1913 in a town called Brest, then in Russia, subsequently Poland, and raised in a strong Zionist family. While studying law in Poland in the 1930s, Begin became a disciple of Vladimir Jabotinsky, the leader of the revisionist Zionist movement. Begin quickly began his rise through Beitar, the revisionist youth movement, attempting to smuggle Jews to Palestine in the years leading up to World War II. With the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939, Begin fled east to the Soviet-controlled lands. In 1941, because of his Zionist activities, he was arrested by the Soviets and sent to the Gulag for being an agent of British imperialism, quote-unquote. After his release from the Gulag in 1941, Begin made his way to Palestine, joined the militant Irgun underground, and eventually became its leader. The Irgun's main mission was expelling the British from Palestine in order to establish a new Jewish state. Begin's revisionist Zionist movement was the main opposition to Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionists. After independence, the revisionists became part of Khairud, or the Freedom Party, which would eventually evolve into the modern-day Likud, or Unity Party. For the first 30 years of the state, labor had won every election, and Menachem Begin remained the vocal but isolated leader of the opposition. The enmity was so bitter between Ben-Gurion and Begin that the two did not speak. The election of 1977 was known as the Mahapach, or the upheaval. This was the first transition between parties in Israel, and Menachem Begin suddenly became Israel's prime minister. One of the biggest threats Begin saw during his time as prime minister was the nascent Iraqi nuclear program. With help from the French, Saddam Hussein had been building a nuclear plant outside of Baghdad since 1974. The project was not secret. Hussein had bragged about it and threatened to drown Israel with, quote, rivers of blood, end quote, making his intentions clear. Throughout the late 1970s, several operations targeted the Iraqi program, assumed to be carried out by the Mossad. Begin knew that something had to be done before the reactor went critical. On June 7, 1981, eight Israeli F-16 fighter jets flew towards Osirak, just outside of Baghdad. The mission was top secret. The pilots did not even fully know their target until shortly before takeoff. They flew under strict radio silence, and Begin kept the entire cabinet together until the mission was over to avoid leaks to the media. An ironic note is that the United States planned to sell the F-16 aircrafts 
which were indispensable for the attack, to the Shah of Iran. Yet when the Shah's regime fell, the U.S. provided early delivery to Israel. Washington had no idea about the strike. The pilots completed a dangerous mission. They flew through Jordanian, Saudi, and Iraqi airspace twice, avoiding detection. After completely destroying the reactor, all pilots returned to Israel safely. For Begin, it was a moment of supreme exultation, which became known as the Begin Doctrine, that no leader in the Middle East would be permitted to threaten Israel's destruction and have the nuclear weapons to do so. For Begin, whose family was killed in the Holocaust, this was the ultimate, quote, never again, end quote, moment. When word broke of the operation, President Reagan was angry that he and the U.S. had not been apprised of the attack. Many Arab states and the U.N. voiced opposition. Despite condemnation of the attack, Iraq was prevented from achieving nuclear capabilities. In an interview 10 years later, as Iraq was launching Scud missiles at central Israel, Menachem Begin said that the first Gulf War proved that Israel was right to carry out the operation on the Osirak reactor. Here to discuss Menachem Begin and Operation Opera are Amos Yadlin and Dan Meridor. Amos was one of the F-16 pilots who took part in Operation Opera. Today, he is one of the most respected voices of Israeli national security and director of the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. I should point out, he was also head formerly of Israeli military intelligence. Dan Mirador was cabinet secretary and close advisor to Menachem Begin. As, a, as someone who was so close to Begin, Dan, how do you see the Holocaust and the Zionist ethos of self-reliance is impacting Menachem Begin? Everyone who lived through these years was impacted dramatically. I think even those of us like myself were born just after the end of the war have the Holocaust in the background of our thinking all the time. It's not something foreign or distant. But there is something that may be misleading. Zionism was an attempt by those who invented it, Herzl, Ben-Gurion, Weizmann, Jabotinsky, attempt to save Jews from what was coming. They felt Europe is trembling. The Dreyfus affair, the pogroms, many Jews fled to America, and they said, no, we'll build a state where Jews can defend themselves and find rescue. Unfortunately, the state was not there in time. And the Holocaust is unfortunately a big failure for the Zionist idea. And I think people like Begin, who lived through Zionism since childhood, and saw the hope and the failure, and saw all European Jews practically exterminated by the Germans from the outset, and especially after the Holocaust said Jews should not anymore be weak, they should have the ability to defend themselves, they should go back to the stage of history, play their role not as object, but as subject of history. And this design is idea, not only Begin, but Begin definitely was very much influenced by this terrible experience. Now, you see, the idea that somebody who speaks in terms of no legitimacy of a Jewish state will acquire the capability of nuclear weapons that can really cause mass destruction to a Jewish state, this combination was a great concern. And it is true that Begin said we need to stop it before it happens. One has to say, it's not the usual thing you do in war. Usually, 
you don't prevent the other side from getting it potentially. You do it when war starts. Let me ask you, Amos, the idea of a Begin doctrine. I mean, you were a pilot at the time, and maybe it was not formulated that well, and maybe the term Begin doctrine only became known after the fact. How do you trace that term? The Begin doctrine is not saying that not Middle Eastern state can have a nuclear weapon, but it's saying that a country hate with a leader who called to the destruction of Israel will not have the means to do it. So if there is a peaceful Middle Eastern country somewhere which are not calling to the destruction of Israel, and it's not only declaration, we see how she has peace with Israel, or at least non-belligerency, they never fought with Israel, they never thought about it. So the Begin Doctrine is not applied to this one. What we saw in history, we saw Iraq with Saddam Hussein threatening to burn Israel, and we saw Bashar al-Assad, who is also never recognized Israel, never joined, not he, not his father, to the peace process that Egypt have started of the Arab world and Israel. And we have today Iran. So Begin Doctrine was not known in 1981. It was developed only after, and it is still valid today in the Middle East. So I just wanted to know how much this idea of the Holocaust was there in the background as you prepared for this attack. It was very, very deep and far away from what we really dealt with. We dealt with operational challenges. We didn't have air refueling at that time. We were concerned very much with the air defense. Iraq was in a war with Iran. And Baghdad was well defended. We were all veterans of the Yom Kippur War when Israel was not successful. So the operational issues were immediate, were severe. And in the back of our minds, some of us refer to the Holocaust, but I think many of us refer to Yom Kippur because in Yom Kippur, we lost 25% of the Air Force fighters. And we fought with a lot of casualties. It's not the generation of the Six-Day War. So more of thinking about protecting Israel from the current threats and not the Holocaust. Very interesting. And by the way, while we're talking about the preparation, at one point, Rafael Eitan says to you, you know, if you're taking prisoner... Tell them whatever you know, because you really don't know a lot. At what point do they tell you that it is you're hitting Osirak? Formally, we didn't know about the target, the pilots that were below squadron commanders. The squadron commanders knew about what is the target, but officially they told us only in the first attempt to launch the attack, which was not in June 7th, it was Independence Day somewhere in May. Then the attack was canceled, was aborted in the last minute. But as smart Israeli pilots, when we were told that we have to be prepared to an operational profile to 560 nautical miles, which was the performance of the F-16 at that time, when we came to the Air Force commander and told him that F-16 can attack a target at the maximum range of five. 160, he told us that it's not enough. 
So we did some tricks, less missiles to reduce the drag, ejecting the, the external tanks after they transfer the fuel, flying in a very low speed to save fuel, and we say we can reach 600 nautical miles, and the Air Force commander was happy. So we went to the map, and with a radius of 600 on a map, we found out nothing interesting in Turkey, nothing interesting in Ethiopia, nothing interesting in Louvre. But if you look to the east, Baghdad was there, and everybody knew that a nuclear reactor is built there. So we understood where they want us to go, but it was not official. Dan, Fagan's the head of the cabinet, and he wants a consensus. And I understand you were only the cabinet secretary after the mission occurred, but you had this closeness to Begin. I'm curious if in his retirement, he reflected on it. I mean, there was a real question here, and that is, would such an attack hurt the peace with Egypt that had just been signed? What do you think talking to Begin afterwards was able to impact and win cabinet support across the board so he could move forward? Leadership is not measured by taking decisions that are supported by everybody and risk-free. There are no risk-free decisions that are important. Leadership is tested when you take the risk and you think it's right to take it. Now, when the uh, fear is that Iraq will get nuclear, and in a short time they would have had what we call a hot uh, nuclear uh, reactor, we wouldn't be able to do it. The decision was to do it. One has to say, Begin signed the peace treaty with Egypt. It was maybe his biggest achievement, the biggest achievement of Israeli diplomacy since 48. Taking out from the circle of war towards full peace, the major Arab country, Egypt. But this did not paralyze him. And he said, we need to defend Israel. Defense come before everything else. And the security of Israel, if you like, the security of Jews comes first. And you have to take the risk. This is one. Second, about the cabinet and Begin. One has to explain to Americans and maybe to other people, it's not America. Begin has no authority. It's a cabinet system. He needs the cabinet. It's not that he wants them to support him. Without the support of the cabinet, he cannot do it. And he wanted to have the largest possible consensus in this decision-making. And this took him many, many meetings, one after the other, to try to convince them. It wasn't easy. The risk was there. The danger was not all that clear to everybody. And it was an unprecedented uh, operation anyway. So it took the time. As Amos mentioned, it was once decided as a date and then delayed. There was a leak from the uh, decision-making process, and it became clear to Mr. Perez, who was then the head of the opposition, who had opposed the operation. It was made known to him that there is an operation and the fact that he knew it meant that somebody leaked it, so it was postponed. But Begin was really a leader and in his decision-making, but he was a Democrat all through. And it was not formality to him. He needed the cabinet. I have to say more than that. There were people in the professional staff, in the intelligence community, who were against it and spoke out, and he let them speak. He didn't say, I don't need you, I know better. He didn't hide from them what he was doing. But I have to say, looking birthwards, you know, when you guys, I mean, the Americans, the British, went to Desert Storm to Iraq in 91, sometime later, you found another effort by Saddam Hussein 
an operation that was not very unsuccessful. He was again going for nuclear reactor or nuclear capability. And the Americans, the British, got him off that track. So the Begin decision and the Air Force attack and the success was historically very important. He set the president, he set a signal to people around that we are serious, won't let it happen. But realistically, it did not give us more than about 10 years. Amos, I've seen you in, in the Tammuz documentary and in other places where you said as important as the pilots were and that people focused a lot of attention on the pilots for this daring raid, you said the real hero was Menachem Begin because he had a sense of historical perspective to take such a, such a decision that entailed a lot of risks. So uh, can you elaborate on that? Taking a decision in the first time since you know, nuclear weapon was introduced to attack a nuclear reactor is something that you need really a leadership to do because it was not yet operational nuclear reactor. It was not yet producing nuclear weapon. And there is always excuses not to do it because it's aggressive attack and not legitimate or with some legitimacy question mark with a lot of risks. And the U.S., which was the main ally of Israel, is not in the picture. So the decisions that Begin took against the main, he was the defense minister as well, but the deputy prime minister was uh, Igael Yadin, a general that basically commanded IDF in the independence war, and all the intelligence were against him. So you need a real leadership to convince your cabinet to prepare the operation. And here, he was lucky to have a chief of staff and Air Force commander that were very much with him on the job. Do you remember any feelings you had at the time, you know, when you actually were attacking or there was just no time to think about it and you just had to block everything out? You see, when I left in the morning, my home, I had my first and only baby at that time, which was four months old. And I knew that I may not come back at night. So leaving her behind was a real concern. If somebody, David, will tell you that a fighter pilot is not afraid, he is lying. The real challenge is, even though you are in danger, you have some fears, is to overcome them that will not reduce your training capabilities in more than 5-7%. And this you are doing by repressing the concern and the fears and concentrate on the professional mission, navigation, flying very low, looking for the air defense, looking for the MiGs that try to intercept you, studying and learning very carefully by heart the maps and how the target will be seen when you will pop up. So these professional actions are putting aside the natural fears that you have. When we break out from the target, we break also the electronic silence and everybody has to say a code word that we are alive. And number eight, my friend, Ilan Ramon, who was the youngest in the formation. He was a captain at that time, Air Force captain. And when everybody say, I'm out and I'm okay, I'm out and I'm okay with the code, he never spoke. So we assume that maybe something happened to him. 
And it was a very, very difficult minute until finally he said, I am okay. Wow. Amos, what has Osirak taught us about the nuclear challenges that Israel faces today from Iran? The main lesson is learn from history, but you must know that every case is a singular case. Even in Syria, you know, in Syria, the operational challenge was there, but much more easier. We have air refueling, we have better airplanes, GPS. I knew that the Air Force led by my friend General Shkedi will destroy the Syrian reactor thousand percent. But in the Syrian case, we have something that we didn't have in 81, a risk of going to war the next morning if Assad want to retaliate. Saddam couldn't go to war with us. There was Jordan. The Iran-Iraq war was going on then too. Yeah, he 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 couldn't go to war with Israel. Even his Quds missile at 1981 didn't have the range that he had in 1991, 10 years later. And when I go to Iran, the Iranians are smart and sophisticated, and they have learned the two Israeli ways. Every challenge is different. As, as I say, the military attack is the last resort. There is a lot of policies and strategies that you should use before you go to the military attack, which is the last resort. There's a learning curve. I mean, Osirak was above ground. Since then, things are underground. Each side learns from the past. Yeah, it's a learning competition. And not only learning, it's also a concealing, trying the enemy to make mistakes. It's intelligence war. You know, it just struck me that having the two of you on on this podcast, what's so amazing, besides you're both being leading voices on Israeli national security, is that both of you were involved in uh, the subsequent attacks. The first one is Osirak, 1981. Then yeah. you have the Syrian strike of 2007, you know, yeah. where Amos is the director of military intelligence. And on the Iran issue, there were so many conversations with you, Barack, Netanyahu, and a few others, a very small group of whether, whether to attack or not. We didn't know of the Syrian plan for a good number of years. Strangely, Assad, the father, the father of the eye doctor, Hafez al-Assad, used to speak of strategic parity, strategic balance. We thought he meant and did build the chemical warheads for his missiles. And we were very specific on what he has and how we deal with that very important challenge. We didn't know that there was a group that was very few people in Syria knew that was dealing Syria and North Korea in a sort of a very hidden, well preserved secret, a turnkey project should have been accomplished, and they would have it. So think to yourself, what would have happened had we not known? We didn't know. If you had asked me earlier than 2007, I would have told you Syria is the best covered country. I knew how covered it was. I know the details. I don't want to go into that. Nuclear threat is the main nuclear in Israel. And still, for six, several numbers of years, we didn't know that he was doing that with the North Koreans. So one of the lessons to me is prepare for everything, but never be sure that you know everything. Never build all on one option because it's such a major story. Now the world has changed and it changed dramatically in the Israel and the Arabs and Iran and all the rest of it. The doctrine that Begin decided on or what was built on Begin's decision 
is a good principle, but it should be examined every time again and again how you do that. It's not a copy-paste. It's right. very different. And I think that uh, this is important that the Israeli government of the day, it may be different from the government governments I was in, but this is democracy, will have the seriousness and the, and the depth of thinking and the non-political thinking and the restraint and the understanding of the importance of force and the limits of using force. Mm-hmm. How you guarantee Israel's security against such a threat of nuclear destruction. I, I think that we are in a good place now. I think along the many years, in a good place, and to end up with what you started, think of the revolution. 35 years before the attack on Osirak, Jews were in the weakest point in Jewish history. were slaughtered like sheep in Europe. Nobody raised a finger, almost nobody. It is the weakest point, weakness, miserable conditions in Europe. 40, 50, 60 years later, we are now maybe in the strongest point of Jewish statehood in the land of Israel. Such a revolution in several decades. And the Osirak attack was maybe one of the tipping points in that process. What I'm struck by was, I don't think anyone believes Begin did it to win the elections. It was a very tightly race. I'm just trying to understand how those elections influenced Begin and if he reflected on it in his discussions with you after he retired. Begin is a historical figure, not only in the sense that he really made history, in his way of thinking. He really saw himself as a Jewish leader defending the Jewish cause historically. He saw the whole range of history from the best to the worst. He was proud of being a Jewish leader and in his hands and he always thought historically. It's not election or any other concrete thing that happened tonight or tomorrow or yesterday. It's long range. This was always big in long range. Second, this attack was planned for months and months. It was not done for election. Election came nearer, and it was postponed. And this is true. He said it openly, that yes, it took place in the beginning of June, some very short period before election, but he thought that if he loses the election, he could have lost. Begin thought it's important that for Jewish history, not for election, that this nuclear reactor is obliterated. And he decided to do it in spite of the fact that elections are there. He didn't do it for elections. But I have to say, it didn't hurt his election efforts, no doubt. But as he said, do you blame me for risking the life of, of our pilots for elections? He said it in a way offended. He wouldn't do that. So elections were there, but they were not the reason for that. So my last question is the American angle. I was rereading the oral history that Sam Lewis, who was the U.S. ambassador to Israel at the time, and he referred to what I would call is the diplomatic radio silence from Israel, that until early 1981, Begin was pressing the United States to act, and Israeli officials were saying, if you don't do this, we'll do it. And suddenly, Israel stops talking. And so Lewis says, all of a sudden, the Israelis stopped talking. There were so many other issues, I just assumed this was less important. But I should have realized that when they stop talking, it doesn't mean it's less important. It's even more important. But I'm just curious if you had any thoughts about the American angle to Osira. America is very important, most important ally of Israel. Naturally, you know that at least since the mid-60s. 
as much as you can, you need to coordinate with the Americans, work with them, try to find common interest, cooperation. And this is, I think, what we all governments have been doing for years. There are cases that you think differently from the Americans. I think of these two. One was the Iraq operation of uh, getting rid of the nuclear reactor, of which we are speaking now. The other soon after was the war in Lebanon. We've touched on Magali, piece of Galilee in June uh, 82. In the end, by the way, at the same time, in September that year, August, uh, Sam Lewis came with the Reagan plan. And Reagan uh, knew always to say we are allies, we have so many common interests, common values. We may have differences when it comes to Israeli security, to the Israeli basic interests of our survival. We take decisions. And the Americans will either agree or not agree. We'll have to deal with it. We will not keep ourselves only under American surveillance and uh, authorization. By the way, Israel's deterrence posture has to do with the fact that, like Osirak and other things, the enemies know that Israel may take an action even if America doesn't accept it. That gives a much more deterrent posture. Begin was very keen on keeping America-Israel relationship very good, and he did a lot for that. But when he had other ideas on what Israel's security calls for, he did that. And this is one of the, uh, the cases. In fact, the relationship has grown much better with Begin, with Shamir, with other people who are not always saying yes to the American position. And relationships are not about agreeing to everything, but about common interest, common values. I think we heard a really a fascinating conversation here between two leading figures on Israeli national security, Amos Yadlin and Dan Meridor. Beyond all the details and the drama surrounding Operation Opera, I think what was most striking to me was how each had a very nuanced view about how to apply Osirak to the future. It's fascinating that while both were very young in 1981, they each had an extremely prominent career in Israeli public life. And as such, were involved in the two incidents where the Begin Doctrine was considered to be applied. In 2007, Amos Yavlin was head of military intelligence when Israel struck the Syrian nuclear reactor. And Dan Meridor was in the inner cabinet during the period from 2010 to 2014, when the talk of attacking Iran was most intense. So here you had two people who on one hand were shaped by Operation Opera, yet they played key roles in the subsequent decisions and were both very careful in saying what were the criteria for an Israeli subsequent attack. Yet I have no doubt if both of them believed there was no other option, they would seriously consider applying the Begin Doctrine. So I want to thank you all for joining us for this fascinating conversation with Amos and Dan, and I hope you will join us for the next episode of Decision Points. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, 
how Israel's most important leaders shaped its destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all. Thank you.